Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Zayani Bat, Personal Finance Writer's Investors Chronicle, and Lauren Peters, Chartered Financial Planner at Fiducia Wealth Management. Earlier this month, US equity markets yet again hit new highs, fueling concerns that they are expensive and may be primed for a fall. But Zayani, You've been speaking to people who argue that should still have an allocation to US equities, despite the fact it seems more like a time to sell them. Why do these people say this? Hi, Leonora. So, yeah, financial advisors have been saying that investors cannot ignore US equities because the US is the world's biggest economy and based on market capitalization has some of the world's biggest companies as well. Uh, it's also home to a lot of innovation and has many dynamic and growing companies. And um, I think finally, over the long term, US equities deliver consistently higher returns than any other markets. OK. Now, are there any particular areas of the US market that seem to have particular potential? Yeah, tech and healthcare. So with tech, the US is home to many of the major global technology companies like Google and Facebook and Apple. And um, many US equity funds have exposure to these companies because they are sustainable. They often have no debt on their balance sheets. They have good growth and they pay investors reasonable dividends. So also the other sectors I mentioned earlier was healthcare. Um, that's quite a defensive sector, but it's also seeing a lot of research and development, um, particularly a development of technology in healthcare. Okay, I mean, these sounds like great reasons to invest. But on the flip side, are there any reasons to be concerned about US equities, aside from the fact that markets are rather high? Yeah, there are many concerns, actually. So tensions with China, Mexico, Iran, for example, um, these could all affect equity prices. So if we take, for example, if tariffs go up with China, then this could fall to consumers because prices of goods will go up. There could be volatility with the upcoming elections. If we take healthcare, for example, um, that's something that both of the major political parties are quite divided about how to organise the healthcare sector. And finally, there are a number of indicators which suggest that the US may be headed for an economic slowdown. Okay, uh, some risks to take on board there. But let's say that, um, you know, uh, you do need to invest in equities, uh, have a high risk appetite and long term investment horizon. So, uh, you know, still want some US exposure. Um, what funds could you use for uh, US equities? Um, so if we look at active funds, so some... Uh, some of the analysts I spoke to, they recommended JP Morgan US Equity Income. Uh, this fund is invested in quality companies uh, with reasonable yields and which pay healthy and sustainable dividends. Um, for investors who might be more inclined to passive investing, um, um, an analyst recommended the HSBC US Index. So this aims to match the S&P 500 Index and its top holdings include Alphabet, whose uh, main business is Google and Amazon. Okay, thank you, Zayani. Some uh, really interesting suggestions. Uh, and see this week's big theme in the fun section for her other fun suggestions. The reader featured in this week's portfolio clinic is concerned about the amount of debt his children are going to rack up as a result of going to university, something those of you who are parents are probably concerned about too. This reader proposes helping his children to make repayments and maybe even paying off the debt for them early. Lauren, Many parents would want to help their children pay off massive student loans if they had the financial means. But is paying off your students' children's loans always a good idea, you know, if you can afford to do it? Hi, Leonora. Um, so I get asked this question quite frequently from clients. Um, lo student loans don't work in the same way as a regular loan. So it's not always a good idea to pay off the, the loan early. 
um, they only become repayable once earnings have hit a certain threshold. Um, before that, there's nothing to pay. However, once you hit the threshold, you start to pay back a rate of 9% of your earnings. Mm. What, what is the that threshold of your interest? So the threshold is at the moment £25,725 a year. Uh, many students now, of course, have student debts of at least £50,000, which is very expensive. Mm. It's arguable that giving them £50,000 towards a property might be more useful in the long run. Uh, there are two main repayment plans for student loans. So repayment plan one is for those who started their course before September 2012. So the interest on these loans is currently 1.75%, which, as you well know, is, is under inflation at the moment. But for later students on the repayment plan, plan two, the interest is tiered. Now, everyone pays an inflationary rate of interest, currently 3.3% per year. But those who have earnings of more than threshold of £25,725 will start to pay an additional rate of interest on top of the inflationary rate. And for those who earn at least £46,305 a year, they will be hitting uh, an additional 3% a year of interest. So you can, you can see it's in complete contradiction to everything we know about loan repayment. Typically, uh, the more likely it is that you will repay a debt, the lower the interest rate will be levied um, on you. So, for example, if you are um, a good lender, if you have a good credit score, you would normally be able to access the best interest rates. But if you had a poor credit score, then you would have to go for, for the, the, um, the higher interest rates to in, in order to get credit. So for me, I find this additional rate of interest, quite frankly, quite cynical. Um, the government has tried to pass this off as, as a graduate tax, but let's have a think about that, really. So the richest graduates would not have taken these loans out in the first place. Their parents would have paid that for them, so they would not pay the, the graduate tax. Um, for some students, again, they would not end up even earning enough to pay back the loan. But for those people who end up doing well but have taken the loans out, they could, in the worst case scenarios, pay back double what they owed, what they borrowed. So for me, I find that, um, you know, is not really a graduate tax at all, but it's a way of squeezing the middle. This is obviously not a good situation and in some ways quite a complicated and convoluted uh, system. Bearing all these things in mind, um, what would you say is the best approach to helping your children manage slash repay their student loans? Well, until they get into the position where they are paying the additional rate of interest, the repayment is quite fair, especially on the repayment plan one where, you know, the interest rate is 1.75%. So that's pretty low. Um, but once the additional rate comes into force, it might be worth considering paying perhaps you know, ad hoc lump sums to pay down the debt more quickly. Um, but for many new graduates, this probably won't be affordable once you take the cost of living into account, of course. The reader featured in this week's Portfolio Clinic also wants to pass on wealth tax efficiently to his children while he's still alive. In general, what are the best ways to do this? So there are a number of, wa number of ways to gift money. At the lower end of the spectrum, you can make gifts of um, up to £150 per year to as many people as you like. But a more useful allowance is the annual exempt amount. So with that, you can actually gift somebody £3,000 in one year. And in fact, if you haven't used the previous year's amount, you can roll that over. So you can gift them 6000 Parents can gift children money on marriage, for example, as well, as can grandparents. A lesser known option is the gift out of normal expenditure rule. So many people don't know about this rule, whereon you can technically gift as much money as you like to people as long as it comes out of your income. There are rules about it, um, so it can't affect your standard of living and it must be a regular payment, so it must be at least annual, for example. But I've, I've known people in the past where they've been able to gift even you know thousands and thousands of pounds per year 
to each child that they have without affecting their estate for inheritance tax purposes because they're using this rule. Okay, I mean, these sound like uh, good options. Do I have any drawbacks or risks to them? The main drawback to any inheritance tax planning is the fact that you would normally have to gift money. So obviously that's removing money from your own estate, which means it's not available for yourself to use later on. I always tell my clients to make sure they have enough money for themselves first before they start gifting away all, all of their assets. Yeah. You need to strike a balance really between how much you want to gift away and how much you need for your own uh, standard of living in retirement and beyond. So another option that can be used is uh, to set up an, ins- an insurance policy, for example. One way of paying down the inheritance tax due is to have a policy in place that can be made available on death to pay any tax. Uh, the way in which HMRC actually go through probate is quite backwards in in a sense because actually your, your executive of a will would have to make sure that all taxes and fees are paid before probate is granted and therefore the estate is released to to the beneficiaries. So having an insurance policy in place can certainly help to pay the tax, but make sure you hold it in trust. If you don't hold it in trust, then actually it adds to your estate and makes the problem worse. But if you hold it in trust, then it's outside of your estate. Now, this reader invests in a junior individual savings account, an ISA for one child, and lifetime ISAs for his adult children. Are these good ways to save for kids? Yes, absolutely. So the junior ISA is a, a way to build up, you know, tax um, advantage savings for a child or investments for a child. Um, there's the lifetime ISA that's been relatively recently introduced is fantastic for helping uh, young adults get onto the, pro- the property ladder. Um, you can put in four thousand a year at the moment, and if assuming you do put the maximum four thousand pounds a year in, the government will top that up by a thousand pounds. So it's kind of like a hybrid ISA pension product, in that you get the tax relief like a pension, um, but you can then use it tax free later on to buy a property with. Now there are some rules and regulations you need to be aware of when um, investing in a lifetime ISA. For example, there are restrictions on the property price that you can purchase. Um, also, if you do not use it for a, a deposit on a property, then you must really roll it over until you're a pensioner, in which case you can't access the money until you're 60. If you do access the money before that time, not for a property, then you end up handing back all the government bonuses. Now, another thing the reader in the portfolio does for his children is invest in pensions for them. But the problem is here, I think, you can't access a pension till age 55. Is, <clears throat> is this really a good thing to do for a child or a young adult? Well, yes and no, really. So actually, it won't be 55 for today's children. It'll be older because the state pension um, is going up and access to personal pensions will, in the forthcoming future, be aligned so that you can access them 10 years behind state pension age. So for somebody who might get to state pension age at um, 68 or even 70, it will be 58 or 60 for them to access a personal pension. Now, the length of time for investment, on the one hand, is a great thing. Um, If you can put money away for your child and keep it there for 50 years, then clearly it's got plenty of time to grow, generate some good returns along the way. You can go into relatively high risk um, because you've got that time frame. Um, Of course, the fact that you can't access the money for that long is also an issue. But then again, locking the money away, I think, is probably preferable to your child, given the fact that children today, um, they don't have necessarily the final salary pensions that um, past generations were able to access. They also have higher rents and higher mortgage charges and student loans pay off. So it's kind of giving them a leg up in the early years to help them when they're older. For the parent, 
it's really about can they afford to not access the money for, well, ever, actually, because I'll never really have the opportunity to access it. So as long as they're happy with that, um, I think it's a, it's a good idea. On the flip side, uh, if you just put uh, £50,000 for each child into premium bonds, a cash investment that doesn't earn interest, is that a good idea? <laughs> Most uh. of my clients have some premium bonds. Um, people like them. You know, if you're lucky, clearly you can potentially win a million pounds. That's fantastic. If you're not so lucky, then the interest rate, as you know, is, is zero. Um, at the end of the day, if you're not regularly winning, winning the prizes, then you are guaranteed to lose money because the capital will, will be eroded over time by inflation. I would say 50,000 is quite a lot to hold in premium bonds. And clearly, if that's a large percentage of your overall wealth, then perhaps you want to look at investing elsewhere to generate some returns. In the case of the reader, I can't work out if he's thinking about potentially handing that money over to his children in the in the short term. If that is the case, then clearly it's better to keep the money liquid at the moment. Um, but if it is money that they are going to receive in five years, 10 years beyond, then I would say to look at some alternative investment options for him. What are the main ways to pass on wealth to your children tax efficiently after you die? So one of the greatest things that came out of the pension freedom rules that were announced a few years back is that you can pretty much set up a perpetual trust with a pension. If you have a pension that you don't necessarily need to access in retirement, you might have other assets, for example, other pensions. Um, you can leave a personal pension. Um, it's held in trust anyway, so that's part of the trust structure issue there. You can leave um, a pension to your beneficiaries, which could be your children or grandchildren. And once you then die, um, they can access that money themselves. If you die before age 75, they get the money tax-free, as long as it's within your lifetime allowance. If you die beyond 75, then they can take over the accounts and pay tax at their ordinary, their normal rate. Um, so a pension certainly is an option. It's outside of the estate for inheritance tax purposes because of the trust structure. Other options are, of course, going down the, the straightforward trust route. Um, otherwise, AMISAs, for example, could be an option. Okay. I mean, on that topic, the reader in the portfolio clinic is thinking of investing in um, alternative investment market AIM shares, because some of these can be IHT free if held for a certain amount of time. Are AIM shares, though, a good way to mitigate US inheritance tax? Because they are some... Some issues with them, aren't there? There are some risks. Yeah. Um, I do have clients with AMISA portfolios, and the reason being that they are typically people who don't need that money. However, they don't want to relinquish access to that capital. They want to keep control over it. Um, so therefore, they don't want to go down the trust route. If you've got clients or if you're you know, a listener in that kind of situation, I would certainly think to, to look at AMISAs. However, you need to be aware that the risks are much higher than going into, say, FTSE 100 stock. Um, AIM shares, by very definition, they're alternative. Um, they are they tend to be fledgling companies, so therefore they have a light touch reporting uh, requirements, and they are normally in a growth stage. So there are the volatility there is is much higher than if you were going to normal FTSE 100 stocks, for example. However, if you don't need that money and you are thinking of passing it down to um, somebody in your family, such as a child, an AMISA will fall out of your estate after you've held it for two years. So if you've used up your other IHG allowances and decide to invest in AIM shares, um, what's the best way to go about doing this? So the regulations around AIM shares qualifying for IHT relief are very strict. Some shares will be eligible one week and then not the next. Um, so it needs careful monitoring. 
Aimshares are a specialist investment area. It requires a great deal of research and diligence to manage this kind of investment. I would always recommend that you do seek professional help for this kind of investment. Okay, thank you, Lauren. Some really helpful suggestions. And see this week's Portfolio Clinic for Lauren's other comments on this reader's situation. And if you'd like to take part in the Investors Chronicle Reader Portfolio Clinic and get some comments on your financial questions and investments, download a form from our website at investorschronicle.co.uk or email portfolio.clinic at ft.com or leonora.walters at ft.com. That's all we've got time for today, but see this week's Investors Chronicle of a website for more on US equities, saving for kids and improving tax efficiency. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. What are the main ways to pass on wealth to your children tax efficiently after you die?